Jesus, you are amazing. We thank you that you came in this world as a savior. You came as a redeemer to, to heal what was so broken. Lord Jesus, we pray that you will fix our eyes on you during this season and really throughout our lives. Again, there are so many blessings of this Christmas season. At the same time, there are so many things that can distract us and get us down even. And so, Lord, I pray that in this time as you open the scripture and see the joy of, the, of who you are, the joy we can have from knowing you. Lord, please fill our hearts with that joy and with peace that comes only from knowing Jesus. And we pray these things and lift this time up to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So this week, right here in Wisconsin, there are serious threats to the safety of children and faculty in several schools. This week in Washington, D.C., there was ongoing animosity between lawmakers who were more focused on their personal agendas and on partisan politics than they were on seeking what is truly best for the American people. This week in Oklahoma, there was a woman who was texting while she was driving, and in her distraction, she ran into and killed a 47-year-old man on his bicycle. In New Jersey, there was a feel-good story about a homeless man who gave his last $20 to a young woman who was stranded at night because her car ran out of gas. This woman was so moved that she and her boyfriend started a GoFundMe campaign to help this homeless man. 14,000 people moved by this very, just feel-good story, this generosity. They donated $400,000 to bless this homeless man who was so generous. This week, however, the boyfriend pled guilty to the fact that this was all a scam, a way for three people to make some money. This week around the world, 60,000 children died of malnutrition and hunger. This week, some of you received news that breaks your heart or that scares you. This week, some of you were treated poorly by people you thought you could trust. And this week, practically all of us felt anxious or stressed or lonely or depressed or angry, at least for a little bit. You know, we all have this idea in our mind of how the world is supposed to be. We, we want a sense of peace. We want a sense of, of wholeness, of vitality, of health, of happiness. This is that ideal that we have in our minds Yet, reality so often falls short of that ideal. Now, today we're beginning a new sermon series called Prince of Peace. In this series, we're not looking so much at strategies for how we experience peace in our lives, because in fact, in the last sermon series called Holiday Survival Guide, we looked at a number of strategies for experiencing peace in our lives. In this Prince of Peace sermon series, we're not focusing so much on strategies, as we're focusing on a person, namely Jesus. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, Jesus is, uh, it says that Jesus is our peace. As we're going to see today, Jesus is called the Prince of Peace. And so in our lives, to experience peace and wholeness, we need more than merely strategies and how-to methods, even though these can be helpful. What we ultimately need is Jesus the Prince of Peace. I invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Isaiah 
chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. Now in this series, we're going to be covering a large span chronologically. In fact, from Genesis all the way through Revelation. And today we're focusing in on a time frame of about 730 B.C. Back around 730 B.C., there was a prophet to the nation of Judah. Judah was the southern part of Israel. A prophet named Isaiah. And God sent Isaiah to Judah in order to call Judah back to himself. Call them to repentance. In addition to a message of repentance, God was dropping hints through Isaiah about someone who would come in the future. Someone who would fix what is broken. Someone who would heal what is sick. Someone who would redeem what has been lost. And this someone, as you're probably guessing, is Jesus. Today and throughout the series, we're going to see that Jesus is our ultimate source of peace. Let's look in Isaiah chapter 9 for some context of what we're going to be looking at um, throughout this morning. I invite you to follow along as I read Isaiah chapter 9, picking up in verse 2. Isaiah writes that the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from that time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So in this passage at the beginning, we see that people are struggling. Verse 2, it says the people who walked in darkness. And it talks about people who are dwelling in a land of deep darkness. You know, walking in darkness, dwelling in deep darkness. That doesn't sound like a very happy place to live, does it? It doesn't. No, I mean, it's a place of, of hopelessness, of helplessness. And Judah, back in that time, was experiencing deep darkness. I mean, on the one hand, the nation was threatened. The nation's very existence. They were at war in 730 B.C. with the northern kingdom of Israel. But there's an even greater enemy further north in the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrian Empire was building rapidly. They were ruthless. They were the biggest superpower the world had seen up to that point. And they were, they were just fearsome for Judah. Judah knew that at some point the Assyrian Empire was going to set their sights on Judah. So there was fear. On top of this, there was spiritual turmoil in Judah. Most people had turned their backs on God. Their hearts had hardened, including the king of Judah, Ahaz. So, so the national existence was threatened. There's spiritual turmoil going on. If you were living in Judah back then, especially if you were someone who loved God, it would feel like a cloud of darkness was just hanging over you. There would be a lot of trepidation about the future. So Judah was experiencing deep darkness. And in many ways, we experience darkness as well. 
Although we don't have a major superpower threatening the existence of America, there is a lot of fear among Americans. There is fear of what's happening politically, whether nationally or globally. There's fear about the economy. There's fear about our privacy with the expansion of technology. There is fear about our safety. Is anywhere safe anymore? Like Judah, there's also spiritual turmoil in America. The, the percentage of Christians in America is decreasing rapidly. And on top of that, those who still associate themselves with Jesus are oftentimes being compromised by busyness or other forms of worldliness. And so we too experience a sense of this darkness that Judah was experiencing. Yet God gives hope. We see in this passage that God will turn distress into joy. Verses 2 and 3 say, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy at harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. So there is joy. There is light even in the darkness. Moving on to verses 4 and 5, we see that that there at one point is going to be an overthrow of oppressors. That at one point in the future, war will become a thing of the past. And this passage, as it moves along, is building toward a climax in verses 6 and 7. A climax where it shows the ultimate reason for our hope and our joy is a child. But this child is not just any child. This child is a king. But this child is not just any king. We see in verses 6 and 7, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from that time forth and forevermore. So we see in this passage, verses 6 and 7, that Jesus is the supreme king. I mean, this description here of this coming king who starts as a child, grows into a king, it's more fantastic and more exalted of a description that can fit a mere human. Throughout the Old Testament, we see the testimony that someone special is coming. For instance, in the book of Genesis... We see that it's going to be a descendant of Eve who will crush Satan's head. In Deuteronomy, it's a prophet who will be greater than Moses. In Psalms, it's a king who will reign on David's throne forever. In Isaiah, it's a child born of a virgin who will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Also in Isaiah, it's a suffering servant who will come, who will be pierced for our sins in order to heal us. In Jeremiah, it's a mediator who will initiate a new covenant between us and God. In Micah, it's a ruler from Bethlehem whose origins are from ancient times. So Israel was holding on to this hope. They had all these prophecies. Yet, after these prophecies came, after the book of Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament was written, there was 400 years of silence in which they did not hear From God, what was coming next? But then finally, an angel appeared to a teenage girl named Mary, telling her that she would give birth to this one 
about whom the entire Old Testament prophesied. So we see back here in Isaiah chapter 9 the telling of who this child will be. It says in verse 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So these are exalted titles for Jesus. So you could also call them character descriptions. You could also call them technically, the technical term is throne names. It says, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So these, these phrases, they describe this king who is coming. And we have descriptions kind of like this today. You go on Twitter, you go on Facebook, and, and you may see people's biographies. They're little descriptions of themselves using little short brief, pithy phrases like this. There was a conference a few years ago, um, a church conference. They introduced its speakers with phrases like this. For instance, for Jeff Vanderstelt, he used four sets of phrases just like we see here in Isaiah 9. He's futuristic visionary, movement leader, gospel equipper, and strategic catalyst. Little short phrases that describe a bit of who he is and what makes him qualified to speak at this conference. Now, this is not just a, a contemporary invention of, of the kind of form of marketing people. It has ancient origins. Back in ancient times, thousands of years ago, there were people who used phrases like this to describe themselves. Who might that be? It would be kings. In ancient times, in many cultures, when a king would ascend to the throne, he would choose titles or names for himself to describe how he wanted to be known. Many times, many cultures, especially for um, Egypt's pharaohs, they used very over-the-top type of descriptions for themselves. These were called throne names. For instance, a king may want to describe himself as mighty bull, dispenser of truth, giver of life, risen with the fiery serpent, son of the gods. So you see this exalted language to try to describe who the king is. Israel's kings did something kind of similar, although with much more reverence for God. Not quite as extravagant. For instance, in 2 Samuel 23 verse 1, we see said of King David that he is David, the son of Jesse, the man exalted by the Most High, the man anointed by the God of Jacob, Israel's singer of songs. So we see again a list of descriptive phrases to help us identify the significance of who King David is. Now we can come back here to Isaiah chapter 9. The child will be born and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So these titles reveal what type of king Jesus will be. And for the rest of our time this morning, I want to focus in on the final one of these, Prince of Peace. Jesus is called the Prince of Peace. Now, if we aren't careful, when we think of peace, we're going to define the idea of peace too narrowly. Because as Americans, we typically think of peace either as inner tranquility or a lack of conflict. That's how most people think of peace, inner tranquility or lack of conflict. But that's how our English word peace typically functions in our culture. We have to understand that Isaiah was not writing in English. English was not invented back in 730 B.C. 
Isaiah was writing in Hebrew. And Hebrew and English are quite different. In the Hebrew word that's translated peace in our Bibles is the word shalom. Now we have to understand that shalom is one of those words that does not translate easily in English because we do not have an exactly equivalent word. Yes, the word peace is used for shalom in our English Bibles because we need a translation. But peace, especially if we think of it merely as inner tranquility, like, hey, things are going all right, I'm, I'm happy, I'm not, I'm not in conflict with anyone. That's typically what we think of when we think of peace. But shalom is so much bigger. Now, we can get our minds around it, but it might be explaining uh, the Hebrew concept of shalom to an English speaker would be kind of like someone from India coming here and explaining to us Americans what the game of cricket is like. Well, you know what? Given some time, we can understand it. But it is going to take a bit of time and effort to understand. So let me give us a, a more robust description of this idea of shalom. Shalom is more than merely inner tranquility or lack of conflict. Instead, shalom is the experience of wholeness, vitality, and flourishing when things are functioning the way they are, they're supposed to in relation to God. Now, I know that, that's a mouthful. I mean, that's a, that's a full sentence there. It's not just a nice little phrase. But that's what we have to get our minds around if we really want to understand this concept of shalom. It's a flourishing. It's a sense of completeness, a sense of wholeness, a sense of, uh, of being comfortable in our skin. But that's because we have nothing to hide, that, that things we are happy genuinely. We're not putting on a mask. That is a sense of wholeness. And that only comes when we're living as we're designed to live in a relationship with God. Now the reality is, every, every single human is yearning for shalom. Even though they may not have a word for it. We all yearn for the sense of completeness and wholeness and vitality and flourishing and delight. This is what we as humans yearn for. God made us to yearn for this. And we can get little glimpses of shalom in our lives. For instance, maybe it's when you're on vacation in Mexico. When the biggest hassle you have is putting on sunscreen and the biggest decision you have is where to eat dinner. Where you get to enjoy God's creation and your mind is carefree. That for you may be a little glimpse of shalom. Maybe for you a glimpse of shalom is when you are doing work or a hobby or volunteering that fits you so well, is so in line with your natural gifts and talents, and it feels so purposeful that you have such a sense of joy while doing it. You feel like Eric Little in the movie Chariots of Fire when he says that God made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. That is a glimpse of shalom. Maybe for you, a glimpse of shalom is when you're with a friend that you trust so deeply that you don't have to put on a mask. You can be fully yourself, sharing whatever you, you feel like sharing without worrying about any form of judgment, where you can be completely open with one another, uh, where, where you are comfortable talking about any topic, but you're also equally as comfortable just sitting with one another in silence. That can be a little glimpse of shalom. Now, the only time in human history when true and full shalom has been experienced is in the Garden of Eden. We see in Genesis 2, verse 25, Adam and Eve, they were naked and they felt no shame. There was complete openness between themselves and with God. 
Yet there was no shame. That's a picture of shalom. This complete sense of wholeness and peace and integrity and flourishing. But it did not last long. Sin entered the world. About five years ago we did a sermon series called The Fall. The Fall is based on Genesis chapter 3. And it traces the downward spiral caused by sin. The breaking of shalom in this world. And so we trace this downward spiral. It started in Genesis 3 with deception. Adam and Eve were deceived. And then they began to doubt God. And then came desire for something illicit. This is the same process that we go through in our lives as well when we are tempted. And then came that decision to sin. Then when sin came, with it came shame. Because there was a recognition of doing something wrong. And then because of that shame, there, there was a fear that entered in of, oh, I may be seen. People may not like what they see. God may not like what he sees in me. And so then there's scrambling. In Genesis 3, the scrambling takes the form of literally hiding. It takes the form of lying. It takes the form of blaming others. Scrambling. We do the same things. If we find ourselves putting on a mask, hiding a little bit of who we truly are, hiding a little bit of that ugliness inside of us, it's because of shame and fear and scrambling. That is a lack of shalom. That's the result of sin in our lives and in this world. We no longer live in Eden. Now there is brokenness, and this brokenness extends beyond the human level to the point where even we see in Romans chapter 8 that all creation is groaning. Nothing in the known universe, fully apart from God, fully experiences the shalom that he intends. Enter Jesus, though. There is hope. We see in Isaiah 9, 6 and 7, For us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That is, Prince of Shalom. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. And so what this is talking about here, about his government, it's talking about God's Shalomic kingdom. Now bear with me. I don't know if Shalomic is a word. But I think it describes well what we want and what God is building. A kingdom with shalom as one of its chief characteristics, this sense of wholeness and vitality that comes as we're living in relationship with God the way that God designed. It says in verse 9, of the increase of his government and shalom, peace, there will be no end. Now I know that some people, politically speaking, are very leery of big government. And here it says, of the increase of his government, there will be no end. But this is a big government that we should all yearn for. The government of God and Jesus ruling. Of more and more people submitting to King Jesus. The rule of Jesus getting broader and getting deeper. That is something that brings life and brings shalom. And because Jesus is the Prince of Peace, he creates conditions for us to thrive. It starts with reconciling us with God through his death and his resurrection. That's the start of a recovery of shalom. Prince of peace. But then it extends into our relationships with those around us. 
where Jesus empowers us to be grace givers and peacemakers. He empowers us to forgive others just as he has forgiven us. Healthy relationships with those around us are essential if we want to begin to experience more of shalom. But then talking about the inner tranquility that people want, Jesus even empowers that as we define our identity more and more by God's love and God's acceptance of us rather than defining our identity based on other people's opinions or our performance. We begin to experience more of that shalom inside of us. So we can already be experiencing a bit of God's shalom here in this earth as we submit to his rule. But even still, the reality is no matter how much we surrender to Jesus, we are still waiting because our world is broken. Back in Isaiah's day, they looked forward to that time when the child would be born and the son would be given. That time came. It came. Jesus was born. Now for us, here in today's world, we are still waiting as well. We can look back with joy on the birth of Jesus, yet we are waiting for that time when when Jesus will return us someday in the future, the second advent. And in that day, cancer will be defeated. Terrorism will be no more. Strife and bitterness will all melt away. Anxiety and insecurity and loneliness and fear and even boredom, if you can believe that, boredom even, will be buried in the past. Even death will be defeated. These are all promises that we hold on to, just like Isaiah and the people of Israel were holding on to the promises of a coming Savior. We hold on to promise, promise as well that Jesus will return. We know that in that day, according to Revelation chapter 21, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This is what we are holding on to hope for at Christmas time. This is what we remember, that Jesus came, and we celebrate that. He came as the Prince of Peace. He began this, this new reign of shalom in this world. But he will bring it to completion when he returns. So when you find yourself yearning for shalom, yearning for that peace and that vitality and that completeness, turn to Jesus, the Prince of Peace. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you and we praise you that you came into this world in such a humble form, as a child, as a son. You came to give us life. You came to give us shalom, this concept that is a bit foreign to us Americans, yet at the same time is so rich. Lord Jesus, help us to turn to you. Our world presents us with many challenges that may break our hearts, may make us scared and worried and anxious, stressed. Lord, I pray that you will be the Prince of Peace, not only cosmically, and not only historically, and not only biblically, but in our lives, that we will submit to you, to your rule and your reign, that your government will be growing in our lives. And as, as that happens, that we will experience more and more of your peace that we can only get from you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Thank you.